I Search for Bill Wilson is a talk given by Mel B., an AA member living in Toledo, Ohio. The thoughts and opinions expressed here are his alone and should not be taken to represent the views of other AA members or the Society of Alcoholics Anonymous. The purpose of these remarks is to share insights into the dynamic personal qualities of Bill Wilson, whose influence in the world gathers weight as the years pass. Mr. B. was acquainted with Bill Wilson, but makes no claim of being one of the AA co-founder's close friends. But he studied Wilson and his work for over 40 years, and believes he came to understand much about this unusual man's drive and aspirations. Mr. B. also came to think of his study as a search, a search for the real person. It's a pleasure to introduce my search for Bill Wilson by Mel B. Who are the 100 most important Americans of the 20th century? Well, in the fall of 1990, Life magazine dared to name them and started a few arguments at the same time. What grabbed my attention was finding AA co-founder Bill Wilson on the list. He was called Bill W., now a household name in the worldwide 12-step movement. We know that Bill deserved his place on that list. We also know he would have declined any such honor during his lifetime. Since Bill's death in 1971, though, the world is learning more about him, acknowledging the greatness of this unusual man who made a virtue of anonymity. And now that he's no longer under human temptation, I suspect he likes his place on Life magazine's list. If the list is known to members of that big AA group up in the sky, I'm sure that Bill enjoys being ranked with people who were his own heroes. Great Americans like Babe Ruth, Henry Ford, Charles Lindbergh, and the second John D. Rockefeller. In these moments with you, I want to share my recollections and impressions of Bill as I came to know him. This follows a search of many years. But my search brought a surprise. I found not one, but seven Bill Wilsons. That's because it took seven distinct personal strengths to complete the work he did for Alcoholics Anonymous. These seven Bill Wilsons are all sides of the same person, but each was vital to the AA miracle. Let me give them names. Call one of them Bill the Power Driving Achiever. Name another Bill the Fixer. Then there was Bill the Individualist, Bill the Entrepreneur, Bill the Communicator, Bill the Peacemaker, and finally, Bill the Founder Statesman. Now let me share some thoughts about each of the seven Bill Wilsons. First, there was Bill, the power-driving achiever. He was a person who selected only a few goals, but pursued them with tenacity and force. AA members credit him with having a big ego, which he had to manage carefully. Whatever it was, it had the horsepower of a freight engine once it got revved up. A second person I found, Bill, the fixer, got into trouble trying to fix his feelings with alcohol. Then he got sober and started out to fix drunks. We know that he finally did in the AA way. But Bill's fixing nature went far beyond alcoholism. He was always trying to fix all sorts of problems for his family and friends. He was a born fixer. A third Bill Wilson was the individualist. He believed in great freedom for the individual. He did not fit well into schemes arranged by other people, and he was never what could be called an organization man. But don't tag Bill's individualism with terms like rugged or selfish. He was a great advocate of personal responsibility for others. He never wanted to violate another person's rights. He was such a great respecter of personal boundaries that he would never walk on your grass or even help you without your express permission. Then there was Bill the Entrepreneur. 
He organized buying groups on Wall Street in the 1920s and should have made it big in the market, except for drinking and terrible luck. But he finally put his entrepreneurial skills to work in setting up AA, and the world has profited from it. A fifth Bill Wilson was a communicator, a man who knew how to get his message across. On Wall Street, he learned to write excellent business reports, but we know him for writing the 12 steps and the other AA stuff that took us into a safe harbor. Another Bill was a peacemaker. He once lost a job because of a drunken brawl, but in sobriety, he lived and breathed the art of peacemaking. He knew how to sidestep conflicts or settle them when they happened. This preserved AA unity. He was a fighter who could win without fighting back. And finally, there was Bill, the founder statesman. This founder statesman served in a fatherly role as AA's protective guardian. He's still with us today in spirit. He handled that role very well. For AA members, Bill, the founder statesman, is like a composite of Washington, Lincoln, and Ben Franklin, all wrapped into one person. All of these seven Bill Wilsons were important to the success and survival of AA. We would be a much different society today if they hadn't all worked together in a wonderful way. AA did not just happen. AA was founded and shaped. AA was guided and protected. AA was nurtured and developed. And all of this work needed those special strengths provided by Bill in his several roles. My search for more understanding of Bill Wilson started with my first AA meeting in October 1948, when a woman loaned me the AA Big Book. This great book starts with Bill's personal story. It's a gripping account, which I've probably read hundreds of times. Maybe it inspired me during the discouraging 18 months I needed to establish continuous sobriety. This started for me in a Nebraska State Hospital in the middle of April 1950, and has continued to this day. As I grew in sobriety, I heard Bill Wilson speak several times and also formed a brief acquaintanceship with him. I saw him for the first time in 1951 when he spoke in the auditorium of Cass Technical High School in Detroit. Bill was barnstorming major cities to win acceptance of the General Service Conference proposal. As Bill, the founder statesman, he saw this conference as necessary for AA's future. As Bill the Communicator, he gave it a neat twist by calling it the Third Legacy. As Bill the Power-Driving Achiever, he took most of the responsibility for getting it across. This effort prevailed, and by 1955, the General Service Conference was fully in place and continues to carry out the mission Bill had in mind for it. I had other personal contacts with Bill. I spoke to him for the last time at AA's General Service Offices in 1964, about seven years before his death. I would have liked spending more time with Bill, but I don't think he would have chosen me as a close friend. Once or twice, in fact, I had the feeling that he was dismissing me quickly. Maybe the obvious admiration I had for him made him uncomfortable, or perhaps my questions bored him. I should say, however, that he was a very kind person who would suffer boring people gladly rather than hurt our feelings. But my search for Bill Wilson went far beyond the few meetings I had with him and the several times I heard him speak. I was one of the four writers who worked on his biography, Pass It On, and I interviewed people who were very close to Bill during his lifetime. 
A wide assortment of AA members, including two or three old-timers who resented him, shared with me their memories of Bill. I learned more about Bill from his wife, Lois, and especially from Nell Wing, Bill's secretary for 20 years and later the AA archivist. There are certain facts about Bill Wilson that speak for themselves. We can take it as a given, for example, that Bill was a highly intelligent person. I'm even inclined to believe that he was a genius in certain ways. But his intelligence was along practical lines. He was not devoted to intellectual pursuits, and he would have been out of place on a college faculty. I would say that Bill's intelligence was somewhat like that of Thomas Edison, whom he met once and greatly admired. Edison liked ideas, but it was their practical application that really turned him on. Bill liked ideas too, but like Edison, he wanted to see something come of these ideas rather than mere discussion. I would also call Bill a virtuous man, at least in terms of the four cardinal virtues, prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. Once on the sober path that became AA, Bill practiced prudence almost to a fault. His sense of justice was keen, he observed temperance in all things, and his fortitude was legendary. In terms of faith, hope, and love, the three great virtues named by St. Paul, I would give Bill additional high marks. He lived with faith and hope, and his love for human beings is self-evident. Now, if there is one master key to Bill's life, I think it has to be his transforming spiritual experience at New York's Towns Hospital in late 1934. You can read about this event in his personal story in the AA Big Book. AA members sometimes call it Bill's hot flash. This experience changed his life by sweeping away his drinking problem in an instant and giving him a heightened moral sense that required service to others. Some scientists think the universe was created in a second or two with a big bang. In the same way, Bill's hot flash was the big bang that shaped AA. Why did this hot flash result in Bill's helping others? Well, I think Bill was always a kind person, even in his drinking years. But the spiritual experience gave this basic kindness a supercharged quality. This compelled him to share his recovery rather than simply use it for personal advantage. What did Bill Wilson look like? When my search for Bill Wilson started, I had a hazy idea of his physical appearance, but it proved to be false. Bill was a stockbroker, so I formed a mental picture of a somewhat portly man with round features, always dapper, and probably accustomed to wearing three-piece vested suits and a Homburg hat. Maybe it resembled a picture I'd once seen of a Wall Street investment banker. But I saw a photograph of the real Bill Wilson in a club in Omaha in 1950. Far from my stereotype, he was a lanky man with wavy brown hair and a long, thin face with a look that was even somewhat scholarly. And when I saw him for the first time in Detroit early the following year, I was surprised by his height. He was six feet, three inches, and he usually towered over any crowd and seemed to bend slightly when talking to people as if to move closer to them. Incidentally, Bill thought that he was a very distant relative of Woodrow Wilson, and I do feel that he bore a slight facial resemblance to that American president. I was also to learn in my search that Bill was hardly ever dapper and probably never wore a Homburg in his life. 
There was much of the country boy in Bill, and he dressed as well as he did, only because Lois kept after him to pay more attention to his appearance. Though he lived and worked on Wall Street early in his career, he never lost touch with his roots in East Dorset. That's the tiny village in Vermont's Green Mountains, where he was born in 1895, and where he and Lois now rest in a small cemetery about a mile south of town. Bill was named William Griffith Wilson, the Griffiths being his mother's maiden name. That was fitting, because Bill's life was strongly shaped by his Griffith heritage. They were an outstanding family. Bill's grandfather, Fayette Griffith, was a substantial man in East Dorset, and one of Fayette's cousins was said to have become Vermont's first millionaire. The Griffiths were high achievers, but they were not always well-liked. They were proud, intelligent, ambitious, and probably a little critical of people who failed or did not pay their bills. We'd call them cold fish. They were also people who disapproved of liquor and didn't like drunks. I'm not too sure they would take much pride in the fact that a Griffith descendant became AA's founder. Bill's forebears on his father's side were a warmer breed. They were capable people too, but alcoholism had snaked its way into the family line. Bill's parents split up when he was nine years old, and his father's drinking may have played a part in it. Yet there was no proof that his father ever became the kind of drinker who might eventually wind up in AA. Bill's father was an immensely likable man, but you do have to wonder if he really showed much responsibility towards his children following the divorce. He went west, and his children rarely saw him in later years. Bill remembered his parents' separation as one of the worst blows in his life. He was about nine when they broke up, and he was 18 before he saw his father again. Shortly after the divorce, Bill's mother went off to study osteopathic medicine, leaving Bill and his sister Dorothy in East Dorset with their grandparents, the Fayette Griffiths. So there was both loss and abandonment in Bill's tender years, the loss of his father and then seeming abandonment by his mother. Bill didn't handle this loss very well, in the years preceding his spiritual awakening. I think it was always with him. But I have to admire the way Bill the Fixer dealt with his feelings about his parents in his sober years. And as Bill the Communicator, he wrote them letters of praise. As Bill the Peacemaker, he visited them when he could, and finally he arranged to have all of them buried in that small country cemetery south of East Dorset. Believe it or not, Bill the Fixer even brought his father's second wife back to East Dorset for burial, seeming to say that if he could not have his family together in life, he would at least reassemble them in death. During his teen years with his grandparents in East Dorset, Bill began to show his hand as a power-driving achiever. When he got hold of an idea or a project, he wouldn't let go of it until he succeeded or was defeated so decisively that he could no longer continue. He sometimes looked upon this power driving as a character defect, but I have another view. Bill's obsession with personal achievement also drove him on in his AA work, causing things to happen that became vital to our success. He stayed on course with single-minded devotion, for example, in the 13 months it took him to write the big book and bring it to publication in the 1938-39 period. Look at most of the other things Bill did for AA, and you'll see Bill the power driver at work. I suspect that Bill's early experience as an obsessive achiever 
had something to do with the abandonment by his parents and his need for approval from his grandfather. The one achievement that always stood out in Bill's memory was learning to make a boomerang when he was a youngster in East Dorset. This apparently took weeks or months of work before he finally shaped a boomerang that would actually return when he threw it. Now, it was said that Bill's grandfather took tremendous pride in Bill, encouraged him in such projects, and apparently gave him lavish praise when he succeeded. I don't think any of us has to be deeply schooled in psychology to realize that Bill needed and craved his grandfather's approval, especially after losing his father to divorce and his mother to her career goals. This approval may have been just as toxic as alcohol proved to be later on. He was also a boy who couldn't let his grandfather or any of the Griffiths down. They were a proud family, and he had a duty to show that a Griffith offspring was a super performer. Later on, he became a star pitcher on the baseball team in Manchester, where he attended high school. Bill attained this despite being physically awkward and not having natural athletic ability. The positive side of Bill's obsessive need for achievement is that he succeeded very well during most of his high school years in winning acceptance from other people. It was also important that this success came in Manchester, a fashionable resort town just seven miles south of East Dorset. Though Bill's grandfather was well off, Bill still had a sense of being socially inferior to the families who summered in Manchester or lived there year-round. Lois, whom he married in 1918, was from one of those socially upscale summer families. So was Ebby T., the fellow who carried the recovery message to Bill in 1934. But the dark side of Bill's obsessive power drive to achieve was an inability to accept any kind of defeat or loss. In Bill's senior year, the untimely death of his girlfriend threw him into a depression that almost kept him from graduating. This loss would have been a cruel blow for anybody, but Bill's reaction to it became profoundly morbid and left him temporarily unbalanced. Bill managed to recover enough to enter Norwich University, but another bout with depression sent him home for a time. Depression was to be a recurring problem in his life. It was tied in with self-doubt and problems that became entangled with his alcoholism. Bill's power drive became stalled and immobilized in situations he could not manage or control. This was his desperate condition in the early 1930s. In that grim period, when he was helpless to do anything about his drinking or his wretched financial situation, Bill's great driving inner forces may have turned against him in a destructive way. Bill had first discovered alcohol while he was serving as an army lieutenant at Fort Rodman in Massachusetts during the First World War. When he was invited to the home of a prominent New Bedford family, that old social inferiority he had felt among the Manchester summer people came roaring back. But he found a new magic in his life from the drink served by these upper-class New Bedford folks. Since Bill was a fixer, a person who simply must set things right, he must have plugged into the idea right away that alcohol would fix anything. Bill went overseas but never saw actual combat during the war. He was an outstanding officer, however, who had no trouble winning the respect of his superiors and the enlisted men under his command. I think this was an early demonstration of Bill the peacemaker at work, even in a military situation. He was never an arbitrary, unreasonable person 
and he had the gift of understanding each person's needs and point of view. This gift, which I'll come back to, was a key factor in the emphasis Bill later gave to AA unity. One question that arises is how Bill got along so well in the Army, since he was an extreme individualist who couldn't have become an organization man. The answer, I think, is that Bill, first of all, was a very patriotic American who believed in military service as a citizen's duty, just as his grandfather had served at the Battle of Gettysburg in the Civil War. Bill's army service also was very short-term and was in a wartime environment when many of the ordinary rules were suspended. The army also put Bill's leadership qualities to good use and met some of his other needs for recognition and approval. But if Bill had stayed in the army as a career officer, I'm afraid he would have soon been in trouble. This would have come not only from his drinking, but also because he would have chafed under the restrictions of military life. Yet he would have been quick to agree that such restrictions are necessary for order and discipline in a military setting. Incidentally, his keen mind and reasoning abilities also made him a sharp analyst of military action. During World War II, he followed the news closely and even studied maps of military movement. In the 10 years following his release from the Army in 1919, Bill laid the groundwork for his personal destruction at the hands of John Barleycorn. Bill wrote of those years as a loss, but I can also see great benefit in them for AA. He and Lois settled in New York City, for example, and he attended Brooklyn Law School. Despite his drinking, he completed most of the requirements for a law degree, though he never received it. Bill said that the law was not for him, and yet I believe he had some talent that would have qualified him for professional work as a lawyer. It may have been in law school, for example, that Bill first started to flex his mental muscles as a communicator. If he had really liked the law, Bill would have been a top performer in creating legal documents and in developing airtight arguments which might prevail in court. As Bill the communicator, that's exactly what he did for AA. In writing the first portion of the big book, he argued a great case for sobriety. He wrote the 12 steps and 12 traditions, the latter now serving as AA guidelines, which members accept almost as binding law. Like a lawyer, he always tried to think ahead to close out all loopholes so that alcoholics could not wiggle out of facing personal responsibility. Indeed, that was his plan in writing the 12 steps. He wanted to pin down exactly what was needed to find and keep a sober life. Beginning in the mid-1920s, Bill had a Wall Street career that for a time was very profitable. He started as an investigator for a surety company, work which took him to Wall Street where he observed fortunes being made. This investigator's job was made to order for Bill the individualist because it gave him the freedom to move around and set the terms for his work. It may have also given him time to do some drinking. Then Bill dabbled in the market, had some success, and conceived the idea of touring the country on a motorcycle with Lois to study companies and evaluate their stocks. This was a crazy idea, but it's just the sort of thing an entrepreneur will do, and it reflected this side of Bill's makeup. Crazy though it was, the motorcycle trip paid off and set Bill up with a good opportunity on Wall Street. Bill, the power driver, then became very much in evidence when his Wall Street career started to take off. It also seems to me that these Wall Street years honed his skills as a planner, 
organizer, and promoter, the basics of what I would call Bill the Entrepreneur. Bill tended to belittle his Wall Street work later on, but he was actually very good at it. I talked by phone with the late Joe Hirshhorn, a famous Wall Street speculator who hired Bill for a time in the 1930s. He told me that Bill was one of the best stock analysts he ever knew. Hirshhorn made money on Bill's recommendations, but then had to drop him because of his drinking. Just before the 1929 stock market crash, Bill had taken most of his clients into the shares of Pennock and Ford, a small food company. Their position was so strong that Bill and his friends very nearly controlled the company. I have no doubt that Bill had both the talent and the vision to become the kind of takeover specialist we've seen in the 1980s. Bill was right on target with Pennock and Ford, but he and his friends, all margin traders, were wiped out in the October crash. Pennock and Ford was a good stock that came back the following spring, but Bill no longer owned any of it. All unknowingly, but surely under the guidance of what we call our higher power, Bill's struggles in the early 1930s positioned him for what he was to do with AA. As Bill the communicator, he wrote long letters to politicians during his drinking bouts. This was also Bill the individualist at work, objecting to government intervention in business. It's probably just as well that none of these letters have been published. But think of the writing experience this gave him. And as Bill the fixer, he also tried to do something about his drinking, and he acquired useful information, but not sobriety. And Bill the entrepreneur tried again in business, but never had another business success. Two promising comeback attempts in the early 1930s, one with Joe Hirshhorn, were thwarted by his alcoholism. Bill's third comeback try, this time in sobriety, was his 1935 proxy fight for control of national rubber machinery in Akron. It failed too, but out of it came his fateful meeting with Dr. Bob and what we acknowledge today as the start of AA. Now, AA has arbitrarily chosen June 10, 1935, as the start of the fellowship, conveniently dating it back to Dr. Bob Smith's last drink. That's okay, but the real roots of the fellowship go deeper than that in both Akron and New York. For this discussion, I think a lot of AA's future hinged on the thoughts that came to Bill Wilson following his hot flash at Towns Hospital. One thought that came to him was that thousands of other alcoholics could be helped by his experience. This was Bill the entrepreneur thinking. He was like a business promoter who sees a good idea and automatically thinks of taking it to market. It was also Bill the fixer thinking. He was going to fix all the drunks in the country. Indeed, fixing drunks was a term used by the early AA members before the fellowship acquired enough humility to realize that we don't really fix anybody. Lastly, Bill, the power driver, got his engine started again as a result of this town's experience. The 1935 to 1941 period was the critical pioneering time of AA. Again, Bill tried hard to get back into business, but it never worked. These failures brought criticism, but they were disguised blessings. It's my strong feeling that Bill was the only person in the struggling fellowship who had what it takes to get the movement properly launched. 
If he had really been able to return to Wall Street in a profitable situation, we would have been the losers and drunks would have stayed in their caves. Please turn over the cassette for the remaining half of my search for Bill Wilson. During the first phase of Bill's drive to start AA, both he and Dr. Bob were members of the Oxford Group, an evangelical fellowship whose spiritual principles became the substance of the 12 steps. Lots of reasons were given for their break with the Oxford Group. I've thought long and hard about that entire matter, and I've discussed it with both Lois Wilson and Nell Wing, as well as old-time Oxford Groupers. For my part, I can't believe that Bill Wilson, the individualist, could have survived long simply as a loyal follower in the Oxford Group. In fact, Bill's ideas about helping alcoholics soon got him into hot water with the Oxford Group leadership, and I have little doubt that these folks would have found other reasons to criticize him. As it turned out in the years after 1937, the formation of AA put all of Bill's talents to work. As the power driver, he made all the early moves that positioned AA for national and international growth. As Bill the communicator, he conceived the idea of a book and wrote the parts that survive today as the essentials of AA. As Bill the peacemaker, he maintained early AA unity even when opposition to him developed in both Akron and Cleveland. As Bill the entrepreneur, he organized the early New York office and got the big book business off to a shaky start. And as Bill the fixer, he straightened out problems when they flared up. From 1938 onward, Bill devoted almost all of his time to AA matters. Keep in mind that it took real effort on Bill's part to build momentum after meeting Dr. Bob in Akron in 1935. They kept in touch even after Bill returned to New York, and by 1937, they could count about 40 sober members in the two areas, most of them in Akron. Largely through Bill's prodding, they then made the decisive moves which turned the tiny movement into a national institution. I can't overstate how important these moves were. Forty people were sober in 1937, but throughout the world, alcoholics were dying horrible deaths. Both Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob were convinced they had an answer for many. But the problem was, how do you get the message out to the people who need it? Some of the Akron members thought they were doing fine as they were. Nothing more was needed. But Bill pushed for three things which became vital to AA's growth. One was the writing and publication of the big book, completed by 1939. The book was a turning point. It carried the recovery tools to distant towns and cities. The second action was setting up the Alcoholic Foundation in New York and opening a central office as a clearinghouse. A third action was a push for publicity, which came with an important magazine article in 1939 and a far more important one in 1941, the famous Saturday Evening Post article, which gave AA an explosion of growth. Looking back today, we take these decisive moves for granted, or perhaps we chalk it all up to the hand of God. I have no doubt that the hand of God was working here, but his primary agents were Bill the Power Driver, Bill the Entrepreneur, Bill the Communicator. And in those early years, when Bill was pushing and pulling and coaxing 
to breathe more life into the struggling fellowship, Bill was using the same skills he had shown on Wall Street when he put together a small buying group. During this formative period, which was so vital to AA's later success, Bill's own financial situation was abysmally bad. Bill began receiving a small stipend from John D. Rockefeller, but the Wilsons stayed almost broke until AA started to grow rapidly and Bill's big book royalties picked up. But Bill told me that this period, when they lived at the near poverty level, was the happiest time of his life. I have no doubt of this, because he was meeting some of his deepest human needs for expression. Bill the power driver, Bill the communicator, Bill the entrepreneur, and Bill the fixer, they were all getting exciting work to do. In these formative years, Bill also emerged as the founder of AA. He was called the founder when I first met up with AA in 1948, and Dr. Bob was considered the co-founder. For many years, however, both have been called co-founders. With all due respect to Dr. Bob and the great work that took place in Akron, I have to say that my search for Bill Wilson leads me to look upon him as AA's founder and Dr. Bob as a co-founder who achieved the first great success in bringing the program to a community. Dr. Bob, I believe, was a much better sponsor than Bill, but it was Bill who held the vision of AA from the beginning and eventually made it a worldwide fellowship. What is a founder? I believe we can define a founder as the person whose contribution is so pervasive and decisive that it is indispensable to the origin of an institution. That's the way it was with Bill and AA. I can't believe that we would have AA as we know it had Bill Wilson not lived. Beginning with Dr. Bob, a large number of other people made invaluable contributions to the movement, but it was all formed around the germ ideas set up and promoted by Bill. Why, then, do we refer to Bill and Dr. Bob as co-founders? This practice began only after Dr. Bob's death, and I suspect that it was Bill, as peacemaker, who changed these references. Stepping down to the role of co-founder, at least in AA communications, reflected his willingness to share credit with others and to minimize his own importance. This was a sound strategy that headed off trouble. In the 1940s and early 1950s, Bill met criticism in both Cleveland and Akron. In Cleveland, a pioneering member apparently sought to establish himself as AA's real founder. It was a weak claim, but he found allies who were willing to support him. In Akron, the opposition to Bill may have reflected community pride and a feeling that Dr. Bob's role was being slighted. So Bill, for his part, elected to call himself co-founder, which put Dr. Bob on an equal basis with him in the creation of AA. It says marvelous things about Bill Wilson's peacemaking skills that he wrote out this criticism and eventually put it behind him. There was lingering criticism of Bill in both Cleveland and Akron, but it has no real weight today. An Akron member expressed his feeling at a large Founders Day meeting in Akron in 1980. He reminded any critics of Bill that if it hadn't been for Bill Wilson, the undertaker would have gotten them a long time ago. Following Bill's initial founding work, it's safe to say that by 1943, AA was airborne as a going concern. 
The fellowship was still wobbly, but the major work was already in place. After that, it probably would have succeeded even without Bill, though other important actions did lie ahead. The tide was also starting to turn for Bill and Lois in their personal financial situation. They were still scratch poor, but through amazing guidance, they had been able to buy, with no down payment, a lovely home near Bedford Hills, New York, and this met their needs for the rest of their lives. At the same time, their big book royalties began to bring them more income, and this left Bill free to devote himself to new plans for AA. That's when he suddenly slid into a nightmarish depression that lasted for about 12 years. Now, this depression isn't the sort of thing that ought to happen to a person who is so spiritual that he could compose the 12 steps. In fact, my initial reaction in learning about it may have been resentment. Bill had always warned AA members not to put him on any kind of pedestal. But I had him up there on a pedestal, and I didn't want to hear anything about clay feet. I think that in searching for Bill Wilson, I was looking for somebody who had solutions to all human problems. I heard him speak at Akron's Founders Day in 1956, and I briefly corresponded with him immediately afterwards. In a long letter, Bill told me more about his spiritual experience in 1934 and recommended that I read a book titled Cosmic Consciousness. He also said, In the past 12 years of life, despite all my blessings and opportunities, I have spent eight in depression, sometimes very severe ones. He described himself only as one neurotic drunk trying to get along while all around him others were doing much better with themselves in a spiritual sense than he ever could. As I indicated, it stunned me at first to learn about Bill's depression, but I've since realized that he showed characteristic honesty in sharing this information with me. And characteristic of Bill the Fixer, he struggled over the years to find answers to this problem for himself and others. His correspondence on this subject was very heavy, and he eventually decided that his depression was a physical, inherited thing. In later years, he became an advocate of megavitamin therapy for schizophrenia and depression. He hooked up with two psychiatrists and began to push this program with the same zeal he had shown in getting AA started some years earlier. Very little has been said about this episode in Bill's later life, but it's clear that the venture made good use of Bill as power driver, as entrepreneur, as fixer, and especially as a communicator. Another explanation of Bill's 12-year depression period could be that Bill the power driver and Bill the entrepreneur had stalled out once AA was off and running. Bill needed something larger than himself to keep up his energy flow, and he never found it in this period of depression. It's also significant that the depression closed in on him just after he and Lois made a trip to California and finally visited his mother again after years of separation. Did this trip reopen the old wounds of the abandonment of his childhood years? Stalled out though he was, Bill completed important work in this 12-year period. He developed the 12 traditions and used brilliant statesmanship to get them accepted by the membership. He helped the Grapevine editors establish the magazine as the official publication of the fellowship. He promoted the General Service Conference 
and wrote the book, 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, which has served as an AA guide. I think 1954 might have been a particularly bad year for Bill. His father died early that year, and I think that was especially painful because Bill had never really spent much time with his father after his parents' divorce. Bill was actually in a state of bad depression, I think, when Yale University proposed an honorary doctorate for him. As we know today, Bill declined this high honor for the good of AA and also for his own well-being. He also insisted that his decision should not be broadcast to the AA fellowship. He wanted no pats on the back for practicing the kind of anonymity he had consistently preached. It wasn't until seven years after his death that the AA grapevine made the facts known and published Bill's correspondence with Yale on this subject. My personal view is that Bill, the power driver, might have wanted this recognition from one of America's finest universities. But Bill, the founder statesman, took the longer view and decided to forego the honor. Then Bill, the communicator, took over and showed such grace and style in declining the recognition that the Yale committee members felt all the more convinced that he deserved it. All this was unknown to me, of course, as I pursued my search for Bill Wilson in the 1950s. After writing to Bill in 1956, I returned to Founders Day two years later and was both surprised and delighted when he joined a group of us for breakfast in the coffee shop at Akron's Mayflower Hotel. That day, June 15, 1958, also marked the beginning of memorial services for Dr. Bob and Ann Smith at their gravesite in Akron's Mount Peace Cemetery. After breakfast, I and a friend followed the caravan out to the cemetery and with Bill's permission, took some photographs of Bill that are still a source of pride with me today. I'm inclined to believe today that Bill's trips out to Akron for the Founders Day event represented further work as peacemaker. Bill made a strong effort to recognize the special place both Akron and Cleveland had in the formation and growth of AA. His main concern was for AA unity and not to build his own popularity in the fellowship. During the next several years following that 1958 Founders Day, I talked briefly with Bill when I was in New York City and could catch him at AA General Service, where he always had an office. A job change took us to the New York area in 1963, and with amazing luck, my wife and I attended the famous Bill's dinner in October, where we were seated very close to Bill's table. This was my only glimpse of Ebby T., the man who had carried the spiritual message to Bill in 1934. I never actually met Ebby, but my memory is of a sad-appearing man who didn't seem to be enjoying himself much. Ebby, as I learned later, had had lots of trouble with drinking over the years. His best period of sobriety had been during a six- or seven-year stay in Texas, where AA members showed him both kindness and gratitude. But when I saw him in 1963, he was in difficulty and was virtually destitute. Thanks to Bill the Fixer, Ebby was given a small income from AA sources. Bill also took Ebby to a nice farmhouse retreat near Boston Spa, New York, where he spent the last two years of his life. I visited this old farmhouse in 1980 with Margaret M., the kindly nurse who had cared for Abby in that two-year period. 
Margaret and her husband were AA members, and she felt that the loving care they were able to give Ebby in this time also helped ease some of the resentment and self-contempt that had plagued him throughout his life. During the next several months following the annual dinner, I talked with Bill Wilson at meetings of the Grapevine Editorial Board. He expressed great concern when my job opportunity in New York simply collapsed. When I saw him for the last time in the summer of 1964, he seemed genuinely pleased that I had been able to rejoin my old company back in Michigan. Bill was the first to say that AA is separate from one's employment, but he had suffered economic reverses himself, and he wanted his friends to do well. In the early 1960s, it turned out that Bill's talents as a peacemaker were needed more than ever. Now, I believe that Bill may have been one of the best peacemakers the world has ever seen. His term for peace, as it applied to AA, was unity. He thought of AA unity as being essential to AA's future, and he also believed that when dissension breaks out in AA groups, it can be very bad for the individual alcoholic. It's said that all you need to start a new group is another member and a resentment. But Bill took a very dim view of such ill feeling. He believed these resentments can result in people getting drunk. So he devoted himself to making peace whenever trouble occurred. When disputes arose involving himself or AA, Bill always followed the principle of not hitting back. He also avoided heated arguments or situations that were always win-lose. It seems strange that Bill the power driver could take such a stance since he did like to get his own way. Yet he had the humility to realize that his own way could be wrong, hence his emphasis on the group conscience. The event that best demonstrated Bill's gifts as peacemaker was in responding, or I should say not responding, to attacks on AA that came in the public press in 1963. If there was ever an outstanding example of the way he could put his principles into practice, this was certainly it, in my view. The process leading up to this distressful period was AA's unbroken record of success and growth, as well as its high standing with the public and many members of the health treatment community. AA, virtually unknown in early 1941, was a national institution by 1963, with a membership in the hundreds of thousands. Bill Wilson, though still important within AA as its only surviving co-founder, was in the autumn of life and was not supposed to be involved any longer with the actual running of AA's general service offices. I remember that one person described Bill as an old codger who comes in now and then. But there was need for the old codger. What few people realized at the time was that AA's very success had set it up as a target for press attack. By 1963, everybody in the publishing business had had a go at saying something good about AA, so that subject was pretty much exhausted. The time was really ripe for somebody to debunk the fellowship. Isn't that the American way? The bombshell hit in February 1963, with a cover story in Harper's Magazine entitled AA, Cult or Cure. Written by a man with a doctorate in psychology, the Harper's article really picked AA up by the heels 
and shook the daylights out of it. Enraged AA members around the country suddenly became Harper's readers overnight. They reacted in pain and indignation. But others, including a few professionals in the alcoholism field, thought the author was right on target in pinpointing the arrogance and smugness of some AA members. The magazine's criticism was immediately taken up with Bill Wilson. He reportedly said that he had always known something of this sort would happen, though he was surprised that Harper's would be the publisher. Then he immediately suggested rereading relevant portions of already published AA materials for dealing with such an event. These were reprinted in the April 1963 AA Grapevine as part of an article entitled, Our Critics Can Be Our Benefactors. Bill said that in dealing with heavy criticism or ridicule that had no basis in fact, the best defense is no defense at all. Unreasonable people are stimulated all the more by opposition, he pointed out. So if in good humor we leave them strictly alone, they are apt to subside more quickly. If they persist in their attack, Bill suggested, it might be well to ask friends to help simply by presenting the facts, but never in such a way that it could become grounds for fresh controversy. There could also be cases when a given criticism of AA is partly or wholly justified, Bill pointed out. If so, it may be well to acknowledge this privately to the critics, together with our thanks. Bill's Grapevine article was AA's only response to the Harper's article. It was not the end of the criticism, because the author of the Harper's piece expanded his arguments into a book and published another criticism later in the Saturday Evening Post. Two or three other publications also ran articles critical of AA. But by 1965, the brief surge of criticism had fizzled out, and that was pretty much the end of it. You could say that this was an outstanding example of Bill the founder at work, protecting his offspring long after it should have been on its own. It was also a great expression by Bill the Communicator, another example of fine, careful presentation of AA principles. But best of all, I think it was Bill the Peacemaker at work. He had discovered the great gift of getting along even with very unreasonable people. For AA's purposes, the best defense is no defense at all. Bill Wilson died on January 24, 1971. As he would have put it, he passed beyond our sight and hearing. He believed that only the body dies, while the soul goes on into an eternal life. So if he believed rightly, the great soul that we knew as Bill Wilson is still very much alive somewhere in the eternal presence. What were Bill Wilson's views on life after death? Well, he had described life to me as a day in school which suggests he believed in some sort of reincarnation. He was solidly Christian in his ethical and spiritual outlook, but he sidestepped anything that could have pinned him down to a specific religious belief. He was fascinated with matters that are considered occult, however, and I can only say that Shirley MacLaine might have loved his views on life and immortality. Wherever Bill Wilson is as a living soul in the eternal, the seven Bill Wilsons are very much alive with us today. One Bill Wilson lives today 
as the power-driving achiever who shaped AA as a worldwide movement. Bill the Fixer is also very much with us. He started out trying to fix drunks, and he was always helping individuals fix other problems in their lives. Today, the tools Bill put together are being applied to almost anything that hints of a compulsion or an addiction. There is an anonymous group for almost every human problem under the sun. Bill the Individualist is with us today as one who required and demanded personal freedom. AA's unique refusal to accept both affiliation and organization reflects this side of Bill. He simply could not abide too much regimentation for himself, and he thought the alcoholic had to be free. But with this freedom also comes responsibility for ourselves and others. What about Bill the Entrepreneur? In his writings, Bill left us the record of AA's early work, and we can know what was accomplished. The startup of AA was an entrepreneurial venture, like the startup of a business. Even today, this process is repeated as new groups are formed. We can be especially grateful for Bill the Communicator, the man who knew how to write about problems and principles in such a way that they would have timeless value for us. Great movements, in order to survive, often depend on having a stock of guidelines and important writings from their founders. Bill the Communicator gave us this in numerous books and articles, and I have little doubt that most of his thoughts will still be relevant a hundred years from now. Times change, but Bill usually thought and wrote in terms of principles that do not change. We also have Bill the Peacemaker standing with us in troubled times. AA members today proudly identify themselves as friends of Bill W. AA's unity is an enduring measure of his ability to establish harmony with others. While Bill gave the world much, I think it was his role as peacemaker that could have the most far-reaching effect in human affairs. I hope that in time, people come to understand that Bill's peaceful approach enabled AA to survive and grow. Maybe this approach can have broader application later on. Bill the peacemaker went to great lengths to get along with others. He made every concession that he could to his opponents and detractors, and he avoided unnecessary arguments and conflicts at every turn in the road. He dealt peaceably with criticism. He endured ingratitude. He understood ignorance and prejudice, and he had amazing tolerance for human limitations. Bill was truly a peacemaker, and I remember him today as a man with a friendly handshake. Indeed, the outstretched hand could be the symbol of Bill Wilson and AA. Bill also left us a great example in his role as founder statesman. Older members are honored in AA, but they also learn that mere time and sobriety does not give them a special place in the fellowship or any sort of authority. Bill realized that, and he graciously yielded to the opinions of others in his later years. In his role as the founder, I feel that Bill made virtually no mistakes. He had always seemed to grow in stature and to draw upon wisdom and grace when dealing with anything that concerned the well-being of AA. When AA was threatened, it was almost as if Bill had the ability to race into a telephone booth and transform himself into some special kind of Superman. 
I never found a saint in my search for Bill Wilson, but as the grapevine noted at his death, he had wisdom and humility. Joined with all his other fine qualities and abilities, Bill's wisdom and humility helped AA become what it is today. For that, we who enjoy the AA legacy should have endless gratitude. And what about Life Magazine's recognition of Bill as one of the century's greatest Americans? He earned his place in that select group of his own heroes like Babe Ruth and Charles Lindbergh. And I have little doubt, my search tells me, that the next century will find Bill Wilson ranked not only with the greatest Americans, but also with the greatest people who ever lived. Thank you. Again, it's important to remember that the preceding thoughts and opinions are those of Mel B., and not those of other AA members or the Society of Alcoholics Anonymous. Mr. B. continues today as an active member of AA in Toledo and a student of the life and work of Bill Wilson.